2 Corinthians 13, beginning in verse 5. This is what the Word of God has to say. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong, your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Different generations of Christians and church history have excelled in some areas and struggled in other areas. In the days of the Puritans and the, the early American colonials, they did very well to warn and warn often of the danger and the consequence of hell and the reality that many would find themselves in eternity under the horrible wrath of God. When the first great awakening began to spread across the land, it began. It began with people crying out, interrupting services, crying out in desperate pleas because they, they began to understand that they were under the wrath of God and were pleading for God's mercy to save them. As I think back on those days, most of those folks were church members. And because of the differences of church re uh, membership requirements, many of those people in those days during the Great Awakening crying out for mercy were more biblically literate than many pastors leaving seminary today. In those days, pastors worked very hard and thought through all the particulars and tried to articulate what it meant to have genuine conversion because there was a confusion between being a church member and being converted. In fact, there was no assumption that church members were converted. Church members had to, have, uh, they had to be educated and be able to articulate properly church doctrine and theology, but that was understood not to equate true conversion. In those days, the church did well to warn of the consequences of hell and to require those of the church to be well-educated in doctrine and theology, but it struggled with making conversion complicated and confusing church membership with being right with God. Maybe the most famous sermon of that era is a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In that sermon, Edwards makes the case that sinners are already condemned and 
and precariously living their days, at any moment possibly dropping into the, the consequence of hell and the wrath of God. He uses several illustrations to show how precarious the life of the unconverted are. One of the more famous illustrations he uses is of a spider over the fires of hell where he writes, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else. But to be cast into the fire, he is of, he is of uh, uh, pure eyes, uh, purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent is in ours. You have offended him infinitely more than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment." Now, if you know anything of this sermon, you likely know it in reference to those type of illustrations. It's remembered today as a harsh sermon, as a, a heavy sermon with condemnation and those types of Ill, um, imaginative illustrations of you being thrown into the pit of hell and the consequence of your sin. But there were, Edwards ends the sermon on some of the most hopeful evangelistic words possible. Listen to the to, two, two little excerpts from the very ending of the sermon. He says, And let everyone that is yet out of Christ and hanging over the pit of hell, whether they be old men and women or middle-aged or young people or little children, now hearken to the loud calls of God's, God's word and providence. Let everyone that is out of Christ now awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Haste and escape for your lives. Look not behind you. Escape the mountain lest you be consumed. The condemning portions of the sermon are remembered more than these hopeful, evangelistic ending words because historical accounts tell us that Edwards didn't actually get to finish the sermon. While he was preaching, while he was explaining the dangers that his congregation were currently in, the precarious nature of their lives, that if their heart stopped if the Lord's mercy ran short that they would be find themselves in the pit of hell they begin to cry out for mercy even before he finished his sermon the struggles of our modern day in the modern church are very different from the days of Jonathan Edwards I think we have done well to emphasize the biblical truth that the only requirement under salvation is faith We've done well to, to remove any barrier to coming to salvation that is not a biblical requirement. We've done well to, to make much of the grace of God and the forgiveness that is available to you today. However, in our zeal to remove any non-biblical requirement of salvation, we struggle to make clear the demands of Scripture that, that Scripture has placed and the 
the warning of Scripture that unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And I fear that we have not sufficiently warned the lost of the real, the present danger of hell. As Paul comes to the close of his letter, he gives his final words to the church, hoping that the next time that they will hear from him, he'll be there with them in person. In the first four verses that I preached from last Sunday, Paul encouraged the wayward brothers and sisters to repent of their sin and promised that if they did not, when he indeed was able to come to the church, that he would not spare them. In fact, he says, I'm going to deal very sternly with you. Secondly, in, in these verses that, we'll, that I'll preach today, verses 5 through 10, Paul is pleading with the brothers and sisters. Now, this is a plea to the church, pleading to the brothers and sisters to give serious attention to the nature of their relationship with Jesus and to examine and test whether or not their faith is genuine. I really just have one point today. One point, and then added to that, a sub-point sort of in, in, in support of that first main point. The main point of this passage is the danger of false conversion. And the importance of testing the validity of your faith. Supporting this main point of this passage, it teaches us that restoration is what motivates the desire to authenticate a, a, a salvation and that we must desire what God desires over anything else. So, so here's how I want to handle the passage today. Number one, I want to talk about the danger of false conversion. And then secondly, I do want to speak about the hope of the true gospel. The main point and the first that we'll deal with this morning is verse 5, the danger of false conversion. Paul says, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. In the faith. Test yourselves. Now, friends, we test things to reveal what is true. Verse 5 is a very straightforward command to examine yourself, to determine the nature and genuineness of your faith. Now, he, he uses two different words here. One, he uses a, a word, parazo, which means to examine. It means to try to learn the nature or character of something by submitting such through a, an extensive testing. And then he says, you ought to test. The word that he uses there simply means to, to try to learn the genuineness of something by examination. Now, it seems like these are just two words that mean the exact same thing. And though they do seem to be very similar, and they are in some sense, the examine is to determine the character of something, whereas test is a particular thing that you might do to make that determination. 
I, I would put that in the context of when you go to your physician and you've got something wrong that you want them to try to help you determine what's wrong with you. They examine you, and as part of the general exam, they might order specific tests, and all of the tests add up to the, to the determination of the exam. This command is first and foremost a command to individual Christians that you must be responsible for examining yourself accurately. I think this is the same principle, and by the way, the same word, that Paul communicated in the first letter to the Corinthians concerning taking communion. I'll read it again when we, when we begin our time of communion this afternoon. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 11, Paul wrote, Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, listen to me carefully. I'm going to speak about participation of the church and other believers in helping you determine the genuineness of your faith. But the responsibility of testing and examining ultimately rests with you. You are responsible. The church and other believers participate and assist, but you are responsible. The only one who truly knows your heart is you and the Lord. You can fake it. You can, you can, you can, you can fool even the people that know you the best. That's why ultimately the responsibility must rest with you. Examine yourself. Test to be sure that your faith is genuine. The first four verses of this chapter, the Bible instructs that when sin is witnessed in other brothers and sisters, the church must warn, the church must confront that sin. When we, we talked last week, when we confront brothers and sisters over sin in their life, and warn them of the dangers. In part, you're doing that to assist them in examining and testing themselves. Listen, if you are able to live in unrepentant sin without any concern at all, that test is not pointing to a genuine faith of, uh, with you in the Lord. And so that's reason why we, we confront each other. I, several years ago, I went to a, a member of this church, and I use that word, Purposely, I went to a member of this church who was living in rebellious, open rebellious sin, confronted him about that sin. He was openly unconcerned, said to me as such, I hear you, I understand what you're saying, I even believe that what you're saying about the Bible is true, but I am not concerned, I'm going to continue in sin. And I looked at him and I said, brother, one of two things is happening. Either you're a believer who's about to experience the discipline of God and it's going to be hard, or you don't know Jesus at all and you're going to be able to continue in sin without any concern. And the second one is more concerning. The motivation for you to examine and test now is that God will ultimately be the judge and will ultimately judge you. 
What motivates the church to confront sin is to help those who profess faith authenticate the genuineness of their faith, knowing that God will ultimately judge. Let me be very clear. When God judges you, the genuineness of your faith will be perfectly exposed. When God judges, the truth of your conversion will be made clear. The Bible teaches in Matthew chapter 7 that on the day of judgment there will be many. There will be many who thought they were right with God but were not. Jesus says in that passage, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Brothers, sisters, friends, examine and test Do not change what is. Listen to me. Examinations and tests don't make you something. They don't change you into something. Examination and tests reveal what is true. If you're sick, or even if you feel well today, and you go to the physician, and they do an examination, they do a test, and it reveals some terrible disease in you. Those examinations, those tests didn't make you sick. They simply revealed what was already there. You must be responsible for accurately examining your own heart so that you might be confident in your salvation. Now listen to me. In many areas of our life, when we fear bad news, we willfully ignore and, 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 um, and avoid anything that might reveal it because there's some bliss in arrogance. But you cannot afford to be blissfully, arrogant, uh, blissfully ignorant here. Some of you have been avoiding this because you know that the, your faith is suspect. Examine yourselves, test to be sure. Because salvation is all or nothing. The second half of verse 5 seems at first to be encouraging, and then almost in the same breath it raises some concern. So look at what he says in verse 5. He said in the second half of verse 5, he says, Test yourselves. Or do you not realize, this is the encouraging part, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And then in the same breath, that encouragement is tempered with these words, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So the encouraging word is that the Bible says, do you not know, do you not realize about yourself that Christ is in you? Because if brothers and sisters, if you're saved today, Christ is in you. The concerning word is the tag to this statement, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The point that the scripture is making is that salvation is all or nothing. There's no halfway, there's no special circumstances or exceptions. It's a yes or no. 
You're either known by the Lord or, you, or he does not know you. You're either redeemed by the blood of Jesus or you're under the wrath of God for your sin. You're either in a beloved relationship with God or you're under the full wrath of God. There is no middle ground. There's no halfway. There's no partial salvation. You either are or you are not. To those who examine and test themselves to reveal true salvation, be encouraged. Jesus is in you. If indeed your salvation is true, you are filled with the Spirit of the living God, you're being sanctified daily, you're, you're being kept by the power of Christ until the day of the Lord. Praise God for that. Be encouraged. To those who fail to meet the test, no matter what good works you have done, Jesus is not in you and you have not been forgiven of your sins. If you have found comfort in half measures, I desperately want you to be troubled today. A half measure is anything that, that you are using that mitigates failing the test. If you've had to use any excuse in your heart or mind, privately, or before another person, why something in your life gives evidence that you're not saved, but you really think you are saved, oh, dear friends, be troubled this morning. If you willfully ignore any examination or test of your faith for fear that it might reveal something unsettling, I desperately want you to be unsettled today. I want you to be troubled today. The promises and blessings of faith are guaranteed and full to all who believe by the power of Jesus Christ. These promises and these blessings will not go to those who fail to meet the test. Tests reveal what is true. Salvation is all or nothing. And the plea, the plea is that right now, this moment, you would act while you have the opportunity. At first reading, this passage may seem harsh. In verse 2, Paul sternly told the church that for those who continued in unrepented sin, he would not spare them. That's harsh language. In verse 5, he warns that some, when they examine and test, will find that they are not in Christ. In verse 10, he alludes to using his authority within the church. And that's not to be heard in the sense of sweet, warm, and fuzzies. He's talking about using his authority to confront, to discipline, to, to deal with wayward believers. But listen, listen to me. Do not read this passage as harsh. Don't read it as unkind or accusatory. That's not the intention. 
The intention of this passage is anything but to be harsh. Hear this passage in grace. Hear it dripping with grace. It would be harsh and unkind to allow someone to approach the final judgment of Christ unprepared. It would be harsh to know that you did not know Jesus, that, you're, that you were banking your eternity on some false sense of assurance in, 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 uh, in uh, false or un, un, untrue conversion. It would be harsh, unkind, unloving to allow you to move toward eternity without ever saying a word to you. When Jesus returns... The opportunity of salvation will be no more. You've lived every moment of your existence with the opportunity to believe. And because that's been our experience since the moment of your first breath, there's a tendency to assume that the next moment will be the same as the previous. But there is coming a moment, and it will catch the world unaware. There is coming a moment when the opportunity for salvation will end. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, Then two men will be in the field. Then one will be taken and one, will, one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The grace of this passage is this. Right now, you have opportunity to examine and test to see if your faith is genuine. If it proves to be true, then praise God. Be encouraged that Christ is in you. If it proves that you've rested and relied on something that is not trustworthy and true, then praise God. You have opportunity to respond to the offer of salvation and be saved today. You have the opportunity to test today and know. You have the opportunity to come to know Jesus in salvation today. It is better for an examination to expose your need while you have opportunity to respond than to experience the final judgment unprepared. I want to say that one more time. It is better for you to examine and expose your need while you have opportunity to respond than to experience the final judgment unprepared. The rest of this passage, so verse 6 to verse 10, supports that first command of verse 5. I characterize it as the hope of gospel truth. 
Now, as you, as I have said often as I've been preaching through 2 Corinthians, that from the beginning of this letter to the end, one of the overarching themes is that Paul is defending his ministry and the gospel that he has preached against false teachers who not only are preaching a different gospel, but are also accusing Paul and trying to discredit his ministry. And so as he's pleading with them to examine and test to see, have they trusted in the true gospel? Have they believed in faith? Is their faith genuine or is Christ truly within them? In these next verses, he he gives both a a continuing defense of his ministry and a, a declaration of the hope of gospel truth. In verse 6 he says, I hope you'll find out what we have, that we have not failed to test. In other words, that Paul indeed and those that share with him in the ministry the gospel they preached and the gospel in which they've entrusted their eternity is indeed genuine and true. Verse 7, we pray that God may not do, that, God, that we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Now, the syntax of Paul's phrasing there makes verses 6 through 8 a bit confusing. What he's trying to communicate there is that his personal success is not what is ultimately important. That only the gospel matters and the restoration is the goal for those in the church. In verse 6, he's saying he hopes that the Corinthians will accept him as a true believer and the gospel he preaches as faithful and true. In verse 7, his prayer is that they would come to know salvation, not so that Paul would be proved right, but for the sake of their own souls. Verse 8, Paul's saying his only motivation is proclaiming the true gospel. Now these these final instructions come in the larger context of Paul defending his ministry against the false teachers and those in the church actively attempting to discredit his ministry. To some, it may seem as though there was a competition a competition for the hearts and minds of the the, the Christians and the authority and the control of the church. It is true. It is true that that Paul had been defending his ministry and the gospel he preached and actively opposing the false teachers. I don't think there's any mystery here that Paul's desire is that the gospel he preached would be accepted by the church, that his authority and leadership in the church would be accepted by those, and that the false teachers would be rejected, and that any influence they have would be put aside. However, the, what eternally matters is not who won or lost, or the individual, uh, individual seemed to have succeeded. The only thing that matters is the salvation of souls. Brothers and sisters, we too often are distracted from eternal matters by temporary contests. Just think with me. Think with me about any church conflict you've ever been a part of. And my guess is that nine out of ten of those, if not ten out of ten of those, was not concerned over the salvation of souls. The greater concerns were given to who's in charge and what, well, whose preference sways the day. 
What Paul is saying here is that, listen, regardless of who is up or down, who's seen as succeeding or failing, he says, even if you think we failed the test, all we can do is proclaim the truth. And our ultimate desire is that you would hear the gospel and believe. Too often we see the work of God only through the lens of what is advantageous to us personally. When contending for the souls of men and women, the only concern of success is the name of Jesus and him glorified. Oh, friends, only the gospel matters. Therefore, we must work according to the will of God. Look at what he says in verse 10. In verse 10 he says, For this reason I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Often Paul has expressed how he does not desire to be confrontational when he comes again to the church. He, he writes hard things in the hope that when he is present, he may not have to say hard things. Verse 10 is another expression of this sentiment. But, but notice that even while he expresses his desire not to have to say hard things to the church when he comes, he's not saying that he will not say hard things. The point is that our personal desires must be secondary to the work and the will of God. Many of you are like me. I personally do not enjoy confrontation and unpleasant conversations. If, it, if I only had conversations that were desirable, I may be a very nice person, but I, I would not be a faithful Christian and I would not be a helpful pastor at all. Paul desired, that God, what God, Paul desired what God desired for the church, that they would have genuine faith and walk in faithful obedience. Notice what he says at the very end of verse 10. The purpose of his, even if, even if he has to use his authority in the church, the purpose of it is for the building up, not for the tearing down. Now, it may feel like, well, let me rephrase that. It feels like. When somebody presses into you to examine and test your faith and the conviction of God begins to come on your life and you begin to, to be awaken to your need for salvation, listen, that in practical ways feels like an attack. It feels like being torn down. But like any house built on a bad foundation, you cannot build a church on those who do not know Jesus. And brothers and sisters, you cannot be right with God unless you are right with God through the blood of Jesus. Only through the Son do you come to salvation. And so to, to confront your salvation, to, to expose, to examine, to test your salvation may feel like being torn down. But in fact, brothers, in fact, sisters, in fact, friends, that is building you up for the glory of Christ. Paul desired what God desired, that they would have genuine faith and walk in it faithful obedience. Every Christian must have this same desire. 
for fellow believers in the church, that they would have genuine faith and walk in obedience. Two ways this desire should be expressed in your life. One, for the advancement of the kingdom. And two, a desire that your life and the lives of each believer in the church would be a good and faithful testimony to the gospel. Desiring the advancement of the God's kingdom is a desire for those who do not know the gospel that they would come to know the gospel. Now that's true of that's true of those who are outside the church who are living lives that are clearly in rebellion before the Lord, but that's also true of those who may be within the, the sphere of influence of the church whose outward appearance looks okay. But when they test and examine their own hearts, they realize they don't know the Lord. So our desire is to advance the kingdom of God by, by, by repentance of rebellious uh, sinners, restoration of the lost to a right relationship with God, that the saints would live victoriously over sin, rejecting sin in their life. This is what motivates his command in verse 5. This is the, the, the kingdom will not be advanced by those who are not in Jesus. So the starting point is always genuine faith for the building up and the advancement of the kingdom. But secondly... If you have genuine faith, the fruit of that, that faith is that your life will bear the fruit of the gospel. As an individual, this means that in public and in private, you live as one under the authority and leadership of Jesus and as a member of the church. You work to defend the gospel truth and build up the church, confronting sin that corrupts, testifying to what is true and what is a lie, using biblical authority for the blessing of the church and not for personal gain. I know this message is a, a heavy one. It's been heavy on me all week preparing for you. So I want to end with a light story, but don't pack up. It's a light story that, I, that connects well with what's happening in this room right now. Several years ago, when our children were younger, uh, we as a family went down to Itchnatuckney Springs State Park in Florida. We spent the day floating down the, the river. And at the end of the day, we were loading up the car and preparing to leave. While we were doing that, my youngest son found an old, crumpled, damaged $50 bill in the dirt. Now, generally, we would have attempted to try to find, to, re, to, to, to reunite the owner of that $50 bill with, with their money, but because of the time of day, the location, who was around, and the, and the nature of the bill, it like it had been there a long, long time, we eventually decided that it was okay for him to keep the money for his own. So we came home, and uh, sometime later, I took him to the bank. We were, going to, we were going to deposit that money into his account. We went to the bank. We approached the, the bank teller. In my hands was a, the old, nasty, dirty, damaged $50 bill and a, and a deposit slip. And he and I were both excited. He was excited because for a youngster, $50 is like a treasure. And I was excited just to have that experience with him. And I'm guessing he was already working in his mind all the things that $50 would buy. We walked up to the, to the, to the teller, 
and I, I, I handed her the, the $50 bill and the deposit slip, and then she took that and began to do her work. And while she was doing that, um, he and I were excitedly chatting um, about all the things that he was going to do with that money. However, his excitement turned to bitter disappointment and mine to terrible embarrassment. When instead of handing me back a receipt indicating that the funds had been deposited into my account, the bank teller said to me, Mr. Smith, this is a counterfeit bill. Now, at first I was startled, and that very quickly turned to embarrassment. If I had realized it was a counterfeit bill, I would have never gone to the bank and tried to deposit it into my account. I almost felt guilty like I had tried to trick the bank. Certainly would not have tried to pass it at, a, as a, at any local store as real money. My son wanted to know what would happen to his money. And I had to explain the painful truth that the counterfeit bill would be turned over to the Secret Service and that we were going home with nothing. From the moment he found the bill that we thought was U.S. currency backed by the United States government, we thought we had $50. But when the, bill, when the bill was examined by one who was trained to recognize authentic currency versus counterfeit currency, what we had was made known. Now let me be very clear. My son never had $50. From the moment he picked up the counterfeit bill, all he had was a crumpled, dirty, worthless piece of paper. The bank did not take away his money. The bank did not devalue his $50. The bank teller exposed a falsehood that we had words of Jesus recorded in Matthew 7 should cause you great concern today. When he says, and then I will declare to them, this is on the day of the coming of the Lord, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. When that day comes and those words are spoken, he will not be saying those words to anyone who ever had salvation. He will be speaking those words to those who trusted their eternal salvation to something that was not genuine. They had entrusted their salvation to a counterfeit. And like a counterfeit bill, they had nothing while they thought they had something. Dear friends, today is the day of salvation. 
Examine yourself well. Test yourself well. Test to determine the genuineness of your salvation. If you are in Christ today, be encouraged. But if you are not, do not let pride or arrogance or any other thing keep you from the saving grace of God. Oh, dear friends, come to Jesus that you too might know the salvation that only comes through the blood of Christ. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsenior.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening, and until the Lord returns, let us live each moment all for the King and all for the Kingdom.